Good morning. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the research uh, director at the Shorenstein Center. Uh, Alex Jones, the director, uh, is on an airplane between Vienna and here at the moment, so I'm, I'm filling in for Alex. Um, I'd like to say, though, that we have a triple header today. Um, we have, uh, in addition to this morning's uh, event, we have uh, a brown bag at noon in Taubman, uh, 270, uh, 275. ADR. Oh, it's in ADR. Okay. It's in ADR uh, with Ron Suskin, the Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, and then at 530 uh, in this room, or in this room, uh, we're going to be introducing uh, the Fall Fellows. Uh, we've got Charlie Gibson, Karen Rothmeyer, Sandy Rowe, uh, Dietram Schuffel, uh, and also uh, our first AM Rosenthal writer in residence, uh, Tracy Kidder. Uh, so that uh, I hope some of you will come to those events as well. Uh, and if you're a voter, uh, you haven't, and from Massachusetts, you have until uh, 8 o'clock this evening to cast your primary election ballot. So, uh, well, we're delighted to have uh, Ariana Huffington here, uh, co-founder, editor-in-chief, columnist, Huffington Post, um, uh, so many other accomplishments, uh, author of 13 books, and we'll talk some about her most recent book, uh, Third World America. And then a long list of other achievements and accomplishments. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, she's an economics major from Cambridge University where she was one of the first women uh, to be president of the Cambridge Union. And if you've been uh, to one of the debates at either the Cambridge Union or the Oxford Union, you have a sense of the significance of that uh, particular appointment. And uh, she's also been a good, very good friend of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, I didn't try to count the number of times that you've <laughs> helped us out, but it's been several times, including uh, acting as a speaker at the uh, Women uh, and Media Conference that we had uh, a few years ago. So, welcome. Thank you. So, we do want to talk about your book, um, but I thought maybe we could talk first about the media a little bit and the Huffington Post uh, and this kind of sensational success story uh, that you're a large part of, the main part of. Um, I went to sort of look at the hits. Uh, I think last month you had like 70 million visits, um, something like 30 million unique visitors. Um, and then you go around looking for other news organizations and it's hard to find comparisons. I mean, and five years ago when uh, this started, I mean, the thinking was that you had to be a brand name to attract this kind of audience. You had to be a the New York Times, you had to be a CNN, and if you didn't have the established brand name, maybe Huffington is a, is a brand name, I don't know. But uh, if, you, if you didn't have that, you, you essentially you couldn't be a big player. Uh, and um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, and particularly where there are, whether there are some lessons for others who, in, in this kind of difficult kind of media landscape, are trying to figure out how to make it work. Well, first of all, um, it's really great to be back at the Shorenstein Center. Um, thank you so much to Charlie for taking the time to be uh, here. I'm a huge admirer, and um, it's just really an honor to have you here. And my great friend, Dorothy Zinberg, whom um, I've known since 1980, 
She was introduced to me by then boyfriend. The boyfriend is no longer around, but Dorothy and I have stayed around. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's actually a really great question because the question of where do you go for your news is really a question of trust. And there is nothing more important now, especially at a time of real economic crisis and economic anxiety, than trust. Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, says that trust in media is going to be the new black. Um, and so at the Huffington Post, that meant that from the moment we launched, we wanted to earn the reader's trust. We did not have it. Trust me, I have two daughters who are now in college. They were teenagers then. And uh, they would say to me, you know, I read this in the Huffington Post, and then I went on CNN to check if it was true. <laughs> <laughs> These were my daughters. So I knew we had, we had a long way to go. Um, and the, the way we did it was, first of all, from the beginning, even though we had meager resources, I insisted on human pre-moderation of comments, uh, which meant that we did not want to become victims of the worst parts of the internet, who are trolls, uh, uh, at hominem attacks, hiding behind anonymity. Right now, we have A, the most advanced technology that can filter those things, and 30, 24-7 human moderators. So, I think that that may seem trivial, but it was an important part of knowing that you can go there. Occasionally, moderators would get it wrong and something would get through. But on the whole, this was a place where you could have a civil discourse. So that grew our, the engagement of our community dramatically. Um, now we have about 3.5 million pre-moderated comments, the ones that get through every month. Um, the other two parts, so that was really how we began to build our community. The, the two other essential parts of HuffPost were, first of all, providing a platform for great voices, some known, some not known, and making it really easy for them. The first person I invited to blog was Arthur Schlesinger. I thought, here is this great historian writing what turned out to be his last book. And the conversation is moving online, but there's no chance that he's going to be part of the online conversation. I didn't even know if he had a computer, but I know he would never have a blog. So I called him, and he said to me, so what's a blog? I started explaining. He said, let me take you to lunch, and you can tell me. So he took me to lunch at the Century Club in New York, where he and I were the youngest people there. And he's, <laughs> he's dead, and I'm not a spring chicken. So you get the idea. So I was explaining blogging to him at the Century Club, and he said to me, you know, let's do this, he said. If I have something, if something happens in the news, and I have something to say, I'll fax it to you. And I remember when, when I said that in some interview, there were some real techies who protested that if it's not done in movable type, it's not a blog. But my point from the beginning was it's a, a blog is just anything that's on somebody's mind that's interesting for me. It doesn't matter if you fax it or dictate it or send it by carrier pigeon. And in fact, we have this concierge service where people who have interesting ideas, but they have to sort of, you have to capture them at that moment or they won't have the time to put it down, they can call. And one of our editors takes dictation, then sends it to them to approve, make any tweaks, and then we post. Larry David does that from the set of Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
Ari Emanuel does that from the golf course. I remember I was the recipient of such a rant once on a Sunday when he couldn't hold of an editor. He called my cell, and it was right after Mel Gibson. Do you remember Mel Gibson, the first Mel Gibson harangue? And he felt that Hollywood was not sufficiently taking Mel Gibson on. They were kind of being cowardly about it. So he did this blog, which I posted like immediately. It changed what, how Hollywood responded to Mel Gibson. So that was part of what we wanted to create. Now we have about 10,000 um, bloggers with their own passwords, plus you know, thousands of submissions that our editors um, clear. And the third element, of course, was 24-7 news. And we started uh, with aggregation. Now we have um, about 30 reporters and editors, and we're constantly hiring more who are doing original reporting. We launched the Huffington Post investigative uh, fund as a not-for-profit, which also breaks stories. So in a nutshell, my dream from the beginning was to combine the best of the old, traditional journalism of fact-checking, accuracy, fairness, with the best of the new, which is kind of immediacy, transparency, and engagement. So, uh, you know, we've had a lot of conferences on kind of new business models and kind of where the uh, strains are in the current system. and, and the news organizations that are in the most trouble are the Metro Dailies. I mean, they're, they're literally hemorrhaging, they're losing circulation, uh, their ad revenues are down, um, they're cutting staff. Uh, it, you know, it's at the local level in some ways um, where the biggest problems lie. And, uh, well, two years ago, I think you, you launched uh, HuffPost Chicago. Uh, you're now in New York, what, Denver, L.A., maybe more, I don't know. No, That's it. Um, when you did that, um, how were you thinking about that particular initiative? I mean, in some ways, that puts economic pressure, right, on already stressed local news organizations. I mean, your, your competition, in a sense, uh, for the, for those uh, traditional outlets in those in those communities. And uh, sort of, what was the thinking behind kind of going local as well as what you're doing otherwise? Well, we want to go local in a bigger way, but we have not yet worked out the business model. You know, the, the business model for Half Post National is entirely advertising-based, and that has really worked. We are now profitable, and it's entirely based on advertising, sponsorships, etc. At the local level, as you said, it's much harder for everybody. So we are, we are going to launch um, in the next three weeks um, our local editions focused more on an e-commerce revenue model than an advertising revenue model. And if the e-commerce revenue model works in these four cities where we already have a presence, then we will expand them to many more cities. But it's an experiment, and we don't, we don't know if it's going to work. We're going to move kind of quickly up here because we want to bring you into the conversation at some point. So I'm going to shift over to the... Uh, to the book, which I mentioned is number 13 uh, on your list of authored books, I think. Um, and uh, I had a chance yesterday to read it. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrific read. It's an easy read, but also one that, you know, is thought-provoking. Um, one of the things that struck me, and this is basically about how, how to re revitalize uh, America's middle class, um, 
the number of policy solutions in the book is almost kind of mind-boggling. There are several dozen kind of suggestions that you have, uh, everywhere from kind of single-payer uh, healthcare system to uh, kind of re rebuilding the infrastructure, strengthening public education and the like. Um, what do you see as the kind of the key one or two challenges in this in this mix of, of areas? And you've certainly identified a huge number of areas where there's growing deficiencies and where, where there's a need that's not being met on the policy side. Which ones do you kind of highlight as the critical steps in the process? Well, actually, um, I think that for me, beyond the sort of policy solutions, the most interesting part is the recognition that we as individuals and members of our communities need to be engaged in the solutions. That this is kind of the beyond left and right um, way that I believe is, is the only ultimate solution to the major crisis we're going through, which is much worse than politicians, including the, the Obama administration, have acknowledged. And that's why I picked this jarring phrase as a title, Third World America, because I really wanted to sound the alarm. Um, every day, it's ironically, in the last three weeks, the, there's been so much news that confirms this, that while I was writing it, I felt I had to make the case and prove it, but I don't really feel that anymore. When you have, you know, um, unemployment going up, contrary to the administration's promise of a recovery summer, when you have the census report coming out this week that shows poverty going to up to 15%, which is really what it was in the 60s when we launched the war on poverty, when you have uh, GDP uh, recalculated downward, when you have what happened in California with the fires, which shows you know the dangers of our completely ancient and crumbling infrastructure, um, and I have an entire depressing chapter on this. Um, but beyond the data, um, I just feel, first of all, if we can talk about the media for a minute, that the media have really failed us um, in terms of telling stories to capture the public imagination beyond the numbers. And at the Huffington Post, we now have two reporters. Uh, we, we hired the first one uh, almost two years ago, the second more recently, whose only job is to put flesh and blood on the numbers. Arthur Delaney was the first one. We were joking when I hired him. I said, Arthur, you should really be called our economic suffering correspondent, but it seems kind of a little dreary, so we'll call you our economic impact correspondent. But he has now become like grand central for stories coming to him from all around the country. And he's broken, and I say broken, you know, you're not breaking Watergate, but you are breaking stories that capture the public imagination about the real pain out there. And in the book, I have this, this uh, quote from uh, Michael Hare that, I, that I, I wanted to read it to you, since this is a media center. In the last chapter of Dispatches, he speaks of conventional journalism's inability to reveal the Vietnam War. The press, he writes, got all the facts, more or less, but it never found a way to report meaningfully about death, which of course was really what it was all about. And I think that the media, and, and you know, we are doing our part, but um, we haven't 
done it as well as we should be doing it, haven't done a good job capturing the turbulence of our times, what's happening in people's lives, the fact that the American promise has been shattered, mm -hmm. that upward mobility, which was sort of at the heart of the American dream, has been turned on its head, and we are now dealing with downward mobility. We have 100 million people who are now worse off than their parents were at the same age. But how do you capture that by telling a story about them, by telling multiple stories about them? Um, I'm sure we all have friends whose children have graduated from colleges, including good colleges, and cannot get jobs. I'm sure we all have friends in their 40s and 50s who've lost their jobs and are not being rehired. So all that is incredibly significant about what's happening in the country because it's not just the economic consequences, it's the social consequences that we're seeing all around with the rise of anger and frustration and the Tea Party and people believing things that they would never have believed in different times because that's historically been the case. In, in times of economic anxiety, people can body, more easily be demagogued, scapegoats arise, you believe that Obama is Muslim in larger numbers than you would have believed otherwise. Um, so that's really the danger to our democracy, um, not just the, the danger to our prosperity. Um, I'll ask one more question and then we'll take uh, questions from, from you. Um, we do privilege students so that if there are students here who have questions, and if you kind of step to the one or one of the microphones and uh, we'll just kind of go back and forth on the microphones. But I wanted to ask you kind of how your own kind of personal background kind of has <laughs> fit into this thinking about, uh, I mean, um, about a decade ago you probably would have been described as a conservative. 1996. Yeah, somewhere in there. Okay, so years. let's make it 15 years. Uh, but then this, tra this transition to being a progressive activist in some ways. And, I, and I'm just wondering how that earlier Ariana Huffington uh, informs the current Ariana Huffington in thinking about a problem like this. The earlier Ariana Huffington would really like the community solutions in the book. Because the interesting thing about my sort of political transformation was I was always a social moderate, you know, on issues like abortion, gay rights, gun control. So the shift was about my understanding of the role of government. So, so when, I, when I was a conservative, I believed that we could get the private sector to really address all the social problems we're facing. I really believed that we should not just delegate all our compassion to government, that we are responsible for that. But I always had the same concern, which, which was that how do we reduce inequalities? How do we continue this journey towards a more perfect union? But my solutions were different. But I actually really believe that we are never going to solve these problems with government alone either. So there has to be a convergence. And there is an interesting moment going on now where you know, people like David Brooks are writing about the need to move beyond an atomized society. Um, people like uh, Philip Blond, the, the red Tory in England, are writing again about um, the need to reach out to our communities and make giving back a part of our lives, and how do we do that? And the interesting thing right now is that the internet and social media are exploding. 
Um, I have an entire section on the book about what's happening with Donald Struess, for example. I don't know if many of you are familiar with that. You know, Donald Struess has been a phenomenal success of inviting online donorschoose.org um, public school teachers to, to kind of ask what they need for their classroom. It could be um, mirrors so that the art students can use them to, for art projects, or pencils, or books, whatever it is. And then you can go online and buy it for them. I mean, you don't, you don't live physically buy it. You can meet the money. And they've raised over $50 million. Now, that may not seem a lot of money, given the scale of our problems. But it shows what can be done. And um, there's another one that I love, another uh, online site, another that was started by Ben Berkovich in New Jersey, called See, Click, Do, where you report, you know it. Good. You see your age. You see that's the thing. The millennials are going to save us. So you go. You you see something. You see a, um, a pothole or a broken street lamp in your street. Anything. Um, you report it online. Somebody else may have the may know how to fix it, and they fix it. So people all around um, can actually immediately take action to to to. Not, not just to report it to the government, which could, have to, could take weeks, right, months, years, who knows, to fix it, but to do it themselves. And there, I mean, there are hundreds of examples like that. Um, just one more, because I, I, I think it, uh, it says something really profound that we in the media need to put a spotlight on, which is one of the problems with unemployment um, is depression not to mention despair, you know, people who give up. So it's clear from all the research I did that there is nothing better than beginning to do something for others when you lose a job. Um, because suddenly you, tra you are transformed from a victim to a helper. So one of my favorite sites is the one that Seth Reams started out of Portland, Oregon, when he lost his job. It's called wehavetimetohelp.org. And literally, he said, I have filed 500 job applications, he said to me. But I still have plenty of time in my hands. And uh, so we launched this thing. And they've helped he and his girlfriend together. They have helped hundreds of people, you know, uh, helped somebody move from their apartment, helped a mother babysit her older child, you know, endless stories like that. People call them, people email to them, and they help. And at the other end of the skill set, because he was a concierge, in, that was the job he lost in Portland, um, our lawyers in Philadelphia who, are either un, who either lost their jobs or became underemployed, so they, st they started reaching out and helping families in Philadelphia avoid foreclosure. Again, they used the skills they had to prevent what is one of the major disasters for middle-class families, losing their homes. And I feel that if we can put the spotlight on what is being done around the country, we in the media, um, we actually have a huge opportunity to scale up all these acts to the point where they really make a big difference. So I don't see too many students standing in line at the mic, so um, anybody who would like to ask a question, uh, please jump up and uh, we'll take you in order. Sir. 
Hi, I'm Joel Angario. I'm a student, mid-career student at the Kennedy School. My question is about the polarization of, uh, of our politics and maybe the media's role in that. Now, yesterday, uh, David Gergen's class, he gave some great historical data that showed that the, the viciousness and polarization of the media, if you look back, or of the politics, if you look back at the 1880s, 1890s, 1900, was way up here. And it's almost equal to where it is today. And then the harmony period was in the 1940s and 50s. But my question is, if you look back at the 1890s, journalism media was transformational. It was very robust. New things that were never seen before were happening, and the same is happening today. So is there a correlation, or is it there's just nothing new under the sun, or cyclical? What's your thought on that? Oh, I think there's plenty new under the sun. You know, my, my compatriot, you know, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, um, you, can never, you can never enter into the same river twice. And I really believe that. So we can never... We can never try and do things the same way that they were done. Uh, when people are saying, you know, why aren't people marching in the streets? Well, people are expressing their frustration and discontent differently. Um, we can't just expect to recreate the 60s. Um, but in terms of, uh, of what I was trying to say yesterday in, in David's class, the we, we, we need to recognize that what happened in the 1880s, say, when we were deporting Chinese workers, what happened in Hoover's time, when we were actually deporting American citizens of Hispanic descent, um, should make us just very aware of why a lot of what we are seeing now, a lot of the anti-immigrant feeling, um, anti-Islamic feeling, are just outgrowth of people's economic anxiety. I mean, this is, this is just, this has always been a pattern throughout history with incredibly dangerous consequences. So we, we really need to address it in profound ways. And for me, there is no better way to address it than to escalate the opposite. In the same way that all these forces are being channeled into real destructive expressions, we need to accelerate the channeling of all the positive forces into compassionate, constructive, and creative expressions. And for me, it's like it's a race against time. We don't know who's going to win, but it is a race. And so every time that we see the misery index rising, and at the Huffington Post, we produced an updated misery index that includes data around foreclosures and data around joblessness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, we need to, at the same time, make sure that the empathy index rises. So it's kind of ironic because empathy was not a survival trait at some point in our evolution, but right now it's a survival trait. It's like if we don't ignite it, if we don't uh, express it in more powerful ways, um, then the other forces that polarize us, divide us, um, and bring out the worst in people um, are going to be victorious. Please. Uh, good morning, Ariana. Um, I run a nonprofit here in Harvard Square that focuses on uh, researching colleges and universities and their sustainability practices. Um, and my question has to do with actually fact-checking, because some of our research has gotten a lot of attention from the mainstream media. And so I've done interviews with the New York Times, with the Boston Globe, Business Week, Fortune, Forbes, et cetera. And I've been shocked at the lack of fact-checking. Unbelievable. Dozens of interviews over the years, and I can count on one hand 
the number of times anyone's ever gotten in touch to fact check any of the information in the story, frequently getting things wrong. And I was wondering what one HuffPost does around fact-checking and, you know, obviously around the blog posts uh, versus the comments and the comments not being able to be fact-checked versus the posts maybe more so. But what do you think we could do beyond HuffPost in terms of helping the mainstream media think more about fact-checking? Because it seems like when we've been cutting jobs, the fact-checking department has been the first one on the cutting block and it just disappeared at many media outlets. Thanks. Um, well, um before I answer your question, let me invite you to write about your nonprofit on the Huffington Post because we just launched a new section yes. called Third World America, which is dedicated to collecting uh, stories about solutions. So exactly what you're doing, the fact that you have a nonprofit here that works on this is absolutely perfect and, and um, you can go and submit it directly or I have a very easy email address, ariana at huffingtonpost.com and customer service is part of what I do. Um, so in terms of fact-checking, you know, you really now touched on, on, um, on, my, on my other um, hobby horse. Other than storytelling and the need for storytelling, uh, what I've been calling for is a kind of technological tool around fact-checking. First of all, fact-checking public statements. Um, it would be absolutely wonderful if someone, maybe there are people working on this here, can come up with a tool so that as people speak or as you are reading something, you can actually have the, you, a bubble comes up. Let's say as Senator Grassley was talking during the healthcare debate about death panels. Do you remember that, how there were death panels? It would be great if a bubble would go up as he was talking, not after the fact that would actually give you the provision in the bill that clearly had nothing about death panels. So in the same way as you are reading, it would be great if you could actually click and you could fact check statements. I think this is going to become increasingly more important. I think fact checking is key. We are doing our part. We have an ombudsman, as we're calling him at the Huffington Post, who works through the night and goes through the site and, um, and then, at the end of the day, sends me and our managing editor spot checks, you know, everything, <laughs> everything around the site that uh, he, he caught that needed to be changed. And sometimes it may be AP style or it may be something minor. Sometimes it can be something more significant. But my point is that it's incredibly important. It's, um, it's all the more important when so much is out there that is completely inaccurate, uh, including major facts. And uh, so it, it, we cannot just um, accept it. And the internet is a two-edged sword here. You know, um, It's easier to get misinformation out there, but it's also much easier to, and faster to correct it. Okay. Please. Hello, Mr. Hampton. My name is Lee as you see from my pronunciation, but I'm a first-generation immigrant from South Korea, so I have a natural interest in immigration issue. So I took classes from Fletcher School and Harvard last semester. So Fletcher School classes very oriented to you know, international view, and uh, Harvard classes focused on U.S. issues. But unfortunately, from the classes, I found out that all the countries which is open to immigration, they suffered from some no problems of the issues, but I also know that including Korea and U.S., almost every industrialized country need 
immigrant labor forces to maintain their economic you know, development. So I expected some of your insights from your book about these issues, but I didn't see many from the book. So could you give me some more deeper insight about how to solve the immigration issues? Um, what, what I have in the book about immigration um, is the fact that w one of the unfortunate side effects of our current sort of anti-immigration stance um, is the fact that a lot of um, immigrants who could have come into this country and start small businesses are not able to do so. That's why the START visa program that um, um, John Kerry and Dick Luger have co-sponsored is incredibly important because it would allow um, immigrant small entrepreneurs uh, with ideas to come into this country and start businesses. And, and that has happened throughout our history. I mean, after all, I know from myself, you know, as an immigrant to this country, that that's why so many people have come to America in pursuit of a better life. You know, that's the term that, that has been associated with America. And now we have a situation where um, many immigrants graduate from our colleges with a great education and ideas that they could put into practice here, but they cannot stay because the quota is so limited. Okay. Hi, my name is Arthi Shahani, and I apologize to that side if it looks like I cut by coming to this side. Um, I have a question that I think runs a little, uh, reiterate some of the other questions, but in a different way. I spent my summer in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and I've visited there several times in the last few years, and I'm amazed by the quality and intensity of the organizing by the Latino community there against the immigration enforcement that's happening. So for example, in May, on a shoestring budget, probably no more than $10,000, they organized a mass march of over 100,000 people. In January, over 30,000 people before SB 1070 happened. But something that strikes me, uh, in mainstream media, yes, but it strikes me even more in progressive media, is that there doesn't seem to be an intellectual curiosity with progressive organizing, but an obsession with things like the Tea Party, for example. And I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Do you think that there is enough coverage of progressive organizing, or where would you like to see more? And if not, how could there be more? Thank you. I, I think that the Tea Party movement has captured the media attention because it's um, national, it's affecting races, so it may well affect the Delaware race today. Um, it's, um, it's, uh, it's having a big impact on um, the DNA of the Republican Party. And, uh, and it has very colorful characters, like Glenn Beck and Sarah Palin. So it's, um, it's obviously going to attract a lot of attention. I, at the same time, I think that there is a, there's been a, a far too easy way of dismissing the Tea Party movement as racist, which I, I don't believe that's at all the what's propelling the movement. I think that there are racist elements in the movement, like there are racist elements all around American society. Um, but I think the movement is, is really driven by, by anger, frustration at the establishments. And um, Democrats are in charge. They, they therefore, are the recipients of 
most of the anger. But if you look at any of the polls around the Tea Party movement, or any of the surveys, the second or the third question makes it very clear that it was anger at the bailout. That was the most profound anger. Uh, and you know what? I share it. I, I, just, I just feel that the way the bailout was done was truly stunning. It was, it was first of all, it's not about left and right, because I, some of my most passionate capitalist friends who sleep with a copy of Ayn Rand's Fountainhead under their pillow <laughs> are outraged by the bailout, because as far as they are concerned, capitalism is about taking risks. If you fail, you fail. You suffer the consequences. Capitalism is not about privatizing gains and socializing losses so that you take excessive risks, you make the wrong decisions, you fail, and the taxpayer bails you out without any strings attached, without any conditions, without any clawbacks, without um, any restrictions on your bonuses, without any demand to lend back. You know, So you can hear how I feel about it, and I still have my job. So imagine if you didn't or you are afraid you wouldn't, because a lot of the people in the Tea Party movement are not unemployed, but they're afraid that the other shoe will drop, which is where millions of Americans are, are at. Let me follow up on that for just a second, I mean, uh, I mean somewhere in, in here the stimulus bill also kind of fits in as sort of a part of that sense of kind of overspending. Book, you um, you're actually quite critical of the stimulus bill. I mean, Krugman argues that it wasn't big enough. Your argument no, is I somewhat agree. different, yeah, but, but you, agree. you agree with that. But you also think that somehow the uh, the way it was targeted is off, or yeah. was off, but significant. I but I feel that um, here is really the main problem with the, with the, um, with the stimulus. In the book, I say that it's. Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, expressed the problem with the stimulus best, even though he didn't know it at the time, which is that he said you cannot jump across a chasm in two leaps. And that's what they tried to do. And they fell in the abyss because it's, it's, worse than, it's worse than they thought because not only has it been inadequate, but it has also given um, the administration's opponents a lot of ammunition that government doesn't work. Because if it's inadequate, it doesn't work. So right now, as a result, the American public in the midterm election is faced with one party that has offered inadequate solutions, another party that is offering laughable solutions. And this is really the choice. You know, the only lucky people are in Nevada because they actually have a none of the above line on the ballot, which may save Harry Reid. Because a lot of people who don't want to vote for Harry Reid and cannot bring themselves to vote for Sharon Anger, will vote for none of the above. If enough people vote not for none of the above, Harry Reid wins. See, that's what our democracy has come down to. But, you know, that's the point about the stimulus. That, that, that is, for me, the biggest, the biggest problem. Please. Uh, Alejandra Matus, a Chilean journalist. Um, I am curious about the process uh, and resources 
from the beginning, the individual blog posts of Ariana to the mass media. How, when when uh, did you start to uh, need resources and how did you solve it? What, what was the behind the scene uh, needed for, for example, donors? How do you solve the first startup uh, problem? Um, there were, I had a co-founder, Kenny Lair, um, who came from AOL, and the two of us basically raised um, half of the money each through how family. Much was, I mean, the first, how much the, money? the amount was just over a million, and um, literally, I I raised it for friends. You know, like um, I remember Larry and Laurie David were the the first investor, and um, and when they got divorced, it, they split it. <laughs> 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 they each got half of the, and, and our investors, our original investors were given multiple choices in the last five years, you know, to um, triple and quadruple their money and get out, but they, they've all stayed in. Um, so after that, we had two more rounds of financing. Was one by SoftBank, and then the last one was by um, Oak Ventures, which is a Silicon Valley um, venture capital firm. Thank you. Please. Um, Andrew Breitbart, everything I've read about him says that he started with Huffington Post, or he was involved in the very beginning of Huffington Post. Could you talk about that and how he differs from what you're doing? Well, Andrew uh, used to work for me. He used to be a research assistant. Um, he also primarily worked for Drudge. When, um, when uh, we were launching the Huffington Post, I asked Andrew to help us um, work out the news part of the Huffington Post and um, also work with me and with Kenny in the way we put the, the blogs, the news, stuff that he knew very well from what he was doing with Drudge. And so, yes, he was part of the startup of the Huffington Post. Um, and um, ideologically, he was always where he is now. You know, his, uh, his help with the Huffington Post was very much around the technology, how things uh, would be most effectively presented, Etc. So you don't want to comment on how how his approach to online news is different from yours? Oh, I don't think it's a, a matter of approach uh, to online news. I mean, what he believes is different from what I believe. So he's uh, in his uh, on his side. You know, he expresses his own um, beliefs about government, about what's happening in the country. Um, about Hollywood, you know, all the different areas that he gets involved in. I think what happened with um, Shirley Sherrod um, was something that um, very, well, that was kind of damaging in terms of the, the credibility uh, of what he's doing. It was, it also showed the problems with how the administration reacted and overreacted, how the NAACP reacted. You know, it was really a great case study of how um, 
how scared Democrats are by something appearing on Fox. You know, it's stunning that the, when Shirley Sherrod was called to ask to resign, they told her she had to do it right away, otherwise she would be on Glenn Beck. You know, that it's just amazing that this is what's driving decisions. And of course, the NAACP decision <laughs> to castigate her before they had even talked to her. Please. Uh, so I, I sort of, in, from my, in my opinion, I sort of see you and uh, Nick Denton at Gawker as sort of like writing the rules of sort of quality online media sort of for the future. And from the perspective, and one of those rules actually seems to be a lot of um, free content from uh, sort of unpaid, uh, unpaid writers. And I'm wondering, from the perspective of a senior at the college, um, uh, what are we doing to make sure that there is sort of a group of, of young, sort of trained writers that are capable of continuing the quality of sort of online media? And how can we make sure that that group isn't made up of uh, a class of people that are, that are able of taking, for example, the unpaid internship? Well, let me actually um, clarify this, because at the Huffington Post, we now have um, 190 full-time staff, plus um, dozens of um, the moderators that I mentioned who are not full-time, but they are being paid, um, paid interns, as well as unpaid interns who mostly are there during the summer, you know, college students. Um, we are hiring right now, and our goal is to keep hiring. And we particularly like to hire young people straight out of college. Um, we just hired as a reporter um, straight, you know, he just graduated from Yale last year. He was the arts editor of the Yale Daily News. We just hired him as a reporter. So if you know anybody who wants a job, <laughs> we are hiring. And that, and you know, we really want people straight out of college. That's that's a fantastic uh, demographic for us. Um, our college section, incidentally, which uh, was launched in partnership with um, 90 colleges, including Harvard, um, is 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 doing amazing work. And it's all the work of students, professors. You know what's happening in colleges that we can we can give it a larger platform. Bloggers are a separate category. You know, there are no expectations. It's like people can write if they have something that they want to say and they want a larger audience, they can cross-post what they are writing on their own blogs. That's not having unpaid workers. I mean, we need to make that very clear. We need to understand that um, self-expression has become the new entertainment for millions of people. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people in legacy media don't understand that. I mean, we have people saying, why are people updating Wikipedia entries for free? Why are people updating their Facebook stuff for free? Why are they writing for you for free? Nobody ever said, why are people sitting on their couches watching bad television for free? You know, people prefer to express themselves right now. 
And, and it's actually fascinating, and it's an, extreme, an extraordinary phenomenon. People want to be part of the story of their times. We now have 13,000 citizen journalists in our citizen journalism project that we launched in 08. Uh, we called it Off the Bus then. Uh, people who were sending kind of reports from around the country around the election. And Mayhill Fowler, who you may remember, broke two not insignificant stories, including Betagate, was a citizen journalist. You know, she had been an Oakland housewife who had for years tried to get something published. And she had never been able to. And after she started writing for us, you know, she ended up um, having a profile in the New Yorker about her and being invited to conferences to speak. So for many people, it's a bit of an audition platform. You know, instead of just going for job interviews, you actually collect published work that gets commented on, that others respond to. You know. Are, nobody's going to be bugged by us to say, you haven't written for the last three months. Where's your work? You know, it's not a job. A job has responsibilities, deadlines, work product that's expected. It's really, we are providing a platform with um, 45 million unique visitors a month now with pre-moderated comments. We take care of the technology. You can have the links and send it out to um, prospective employers if you don't have a job, or share with your friends, or get your ideas out there. Okay, we'll take these last two questions, um, please. Um, Ariana, I'm uh, mid-career and legacy media, so you're making me feel I really have to get with it and get you know with the new world you're talking about. Uh, I'm here as one of several Neemans. Um, what strikes me is your take on the way the revolution that's happening. So I'd like to ask how long you think the New York Times is going to survive in print? Oh, uh, indefinitely. Why? I think um, I think there's something in our DNA that loves reading newspapers, especially if you're as old as I am. I and I feel, I mean I subscribe to seven newspapers. I very I sometimes don't have time to read them, but I like having them around. <laughs> <laughs> I love reading magazines. I don't think I think the New York Times is never going to go away. I think the New York Times is doing a fantastic job online. I recently had lunch with their online editor and, and Jill Abramson who has been brought in, you know, to really look at how you integrate online with print and, and they're doing great work. So you don't think it's zero sum? I don't. I never can. did. I actually, even from the day we launched, I said the future is hybrid. I never saw it as either or. I never saw it. It's uh, the Huffington Post or the New York Times. It's online or print. Never ever saw that. I feel that the best of legacy media will continue to experiment, do inventive things online. And the best of online media will continue to add reporting and honor the traditions of great journalism. And um, I think that's how it is. In our case, we, we always wanted to be the first internet newspaper. So <clears throat> even though we started with just one section, we knew that we wanted to keep adding sections. So now we have 22 sections. So we cover everything that a newspaper would cover, you know, 
the last section we added was travel. We launched books two years ago in partnership with the New York Review of Books, entertainment, style, college, sports. Um, we are going to be launching um, a new section next month that I'm kind of excited about, which was Nora Ephron's idea. She's a contributing editor. And, and she said to me one morning, the next section we launch should be divorce. <laughs> she said there are millions of people who are divorced and who are, and there isn't one place where they can come and find everything aggregated and views on, you know, how do you parent after divorce, how do you date after divorce, and, you know, then she had this great line which was, um, marriage is for some time but divorce is forever. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm a mid-career student here, and I'm wondering, you obviously had great vision when you started the Huffington Post. What's your vision for the future, and what do you think the next big platform is going to be, and do you have any ideas to move ahead in a new platform? I actually think that the next big thing is going to be disconnecting. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are all hyper-connected, and, um, and we are paying a price. And I know that for myself. So I feel that in kind of disconnecting in order to connect with ourselves is going to become a bigger and bigger trend. I, f I have this vision that I don't know how to monetize it, but stay with me, <laughs> that um, the most exclusive conferences in the future are going to be taking place in uh, areas where you have no internet access, where your Blackberries and your iPhones don't work, and where you can actually just be with each other and be with yourselves. Until that happens, we all need to deal with that. I mean, I have, I have like grown to just do certain things to protect myself from my own addiction. So that, for example, uh, at night, I charge my devices as far away from where I'm sleeping as possible. Like if I'm at home, which is two floors, I put them downstairs. Never, never near your bed. If anybody here is charging their devices near your bed, please, if you have learned one thing from me today, <laughs> don't do that. It just, there's nothing worse then say waking up to go to the bathroom or whatever and looking at your Blackberry or your iPhone. Even if you go back to sleep, it's not the same sleep. There's medical evidence that shows that. You have really been, you have been, your sleep, which is really about getting away from everything, has been interrupted. You have, you have brought your life into your mind again. So don't do that. It's just not worth it. I tell my children that. That's why I take this tone of voice with you. <laughs> I go to the rooms in college and say, why is your iPhone by your bed? Um, and the other thing is that we, we are, the idea of multitasking, and I, I know we have to finish, so this will be the last thing I say. That, the idea that we are productive when we are multitasking is just completely incorrect. You know, all that multitasking, all that being on the phone and looking at the BlackBerry, having dinner and looking at the BlackBerry as though nothing can wait. 
um, means that we, there's, that we are ignoring the power of what my mother used to call unitasking. You know, just being really present. If you think of it, when you really love doing something, when you're in love with someone, you're just really present there. And there's tremendous power and creativity and access to our wisdom when we do that. But don't forget to check out the Huffington Post. <laughs> <laughs>